July of 2015, the music streaming service, Spotify, added to their platform a simple little algorithm presented as a feature called Discover Weekly. Discover Weekly manifests as a playlist that changes each week. Every Monday, a new playlist, about two hours long, appears in your Spotify app, and contained within that playlist is an assortment of music from different artists. Though the Spotify people didn't initially think it would become very popular, serving as little more than a neat gimmick, many people consider it to be one of the major selling points of Spotify over its competitors, and within the first year of its existence, almost 5 billion tracks were played via these personalized playlists. So how does this algorithm work? The broad stroke overview is that it watches what you do, how you interact with the music, what artists you follow, which tracks you play, how long you play them for, which tracks in a particular album you skip, and then it combines all that data with other data and data that it has collected about every other subscriber on the service, which as of early 2017 includes over 100 million subscribers, about 50 million of which are paying subscribers. And the more data this algorithm has, the more it can guess at what you will enjoy. And throwing these two-hour playlists your way increases the data it has access to immensely, because the lists expose you to completely new musicians and completely new genres of music, which in turn provokes you to either sit and listen all the way through, or to skip past them after the first 10 seconds or halfway through the song. These playlists then, which were built out of data, have massively increased the amount of data that Spotify collects, which then self-reinforces its ability to choose the artists and songs it thinks you will enjoy the most, despite your never having listened to them, or maybe even anything even remotely like them before. Now, Spotify is an imperfect service in many ways. The issue of how artists and labels make money via streaming services, for instance, is a very hot topic of debate. There is a lot of rapid change occurring within that facet of the music industry right now, and these changes can be more than a little disconcerting at times, and the companies that are pushing forward more changes and causing the changes to happen faster can often seem like the villains in the situation, and for all we know, they actually are. But even with all the downsides, I will say that Discover Weekly is one of my personal favorite things about Spotify, and it's a big part of why I have not yet switched over to one of the many competing services that now exists that offers more or less the same thing, and sometimes even at a cheaper price. I like being exposed to new things. I like being surprised by a song that I would have been unlikely to encounter in any other way. But even knowing that, even recognizing the benefits, even the personal benefits of this feature, I still think that Discover Weekly and streaming music and Spotify in particular warrants our continued critical attention. After all, if we are being fed music that we are more likely to enjoy based on past experiences and those experiences of people like us, doesn't this, over time, 
just further reinforce the filter bubbles that increasingly surround us in our online lives. Isn't this similar in many ways to what Facebook has been called out for in showing us information and presenting us with news that is most likely to stimulate a response of the kind that is beneficial to them and their business model? In the case of Facebook, that means news and updates that make us click like and share or to sometimes become outraged enough to leave an angry comment. And in the case of Spotify, this might mean simply playing us more and more of the same types of songs because those songs reinforce our existing biases and keep us coming back, perhaps even more so than all of those delightful little surprises that we might currently encounter the way the algorithm operates today. It's worth asking whether this is actually a negative thing. You could very well argue that having a streaming service that feeds you nothing but what you know you already like, and which it knows you will already like, could be very beneficial. That's a very valuable thing in a lot of ways. Though I would also argue that if these algorithms with time become so accurate that they are capable of feeding us only the things that we are certain to enjoy each week, rather than interspersing those tracks with songs that are on the periphery of what we currently enjoy, or periodic bursts of outliers that don't quite fit with the rest, but which it has some reason to believe that we might possibly enjoy if we're exposed to it, then we will find ourselves increasingly walled off from each other, increasingly put into little demographic categories. And though they might be very refined, well-sharpened categories, we will still be boxed up and sold as demographic markets, just like any other demographic market. Rather than being stimulated towards growth, and rather than Spotify or services like it becoming a catalyst that helps us evolve our tastes over time, it will become a mechanism for simply reinforcing our existing tastes. And it's worth remembering that your existing tastes today were probably not always your tastes. So the tastes that you have today are refinements on what you had before. And there's a very good chance and almost certainty that given the right atmosphere and environment, your tastes will continue to grow and hopefully become even more epic. Your future self will certainly think so compared to what you prefer today. If that future self is given the opportunity to exist, that is. If the chance encounters with sounds and rhythms and artists that I never would have had any reason to be exposed to before were to go away from the Spotify service. And past experiences with algorithms leads me to believe that that very well could be the direction that it goes in, either as part of the algorithm's internal evolution to make it more effective according to a particular metric, or as part of a business move by Spotify to emphasize certain types of interactions over whatever interactions are involved with the process of new music discovery, then this service could become a whole lot less growth-oriented and less about surprising users and more about building up an increasingly opaque filter bubble. It could become something that reinforces biases and serves only to construct increasingly inassailable, cozy little bubbles that we all live inside, rather than taking us on a weekly journey through the unknown. What I want to talk about this week is the precursor to algorithms when it comes to making recommendations as a profession, the subjective analog version of something that we are increasingly leaving to computers and the wisdom of the crowds these days. 
Today, I want to talk about critics and criticism. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported show. If you are enjoying the podcast, consider stopping by letsknowthings.com and clicking over to the Contribute page. There you will find an array of different ways that you can help contribute to the show. You can leave a review on iTunes. You can share it with a friend, share it with social media. You can contribute monetarily directly through Venmo or PayPal. Any and all efforts of this sort are very, very much appreciated. Thank you so much to everyone who has already contributed in some fashion. And thank you in advance if you are considering doing so in the future. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free 30-day trial of Audible and you will receive an audiobook of your choice. And if you do not have any book currently on your want list that fits the bill, stay tuned till the end of the episode, and I will make a recommendation of what you might consider spending that credit on. And the other sponsor today is HostGator. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount off of their already very reasonable hosting prices. HostGator.com slash LKT. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to unspool today comes from the website Eater, a food website. And the title of this article is Who Gets to Be a Restaurant Critic? And the subtitle is The Chicken Connoisseur on the Merits of Authentic Populism. There's a lot going on in this piece, but I want to start this discussion with a quote from the piece itself, which I believe does a great job of introducing the thesis statement or some of the core thesis statements that are presented within. Quote, most food criticism is defined by a single word, should. It is almost impossible to encounter a review that doesn't either explicitly or implicitly judge what is on a plate by a standard of what should be, whether cacio e pepe is sufficiently al dente, tonkotsu ramen broth unctuous enough, or a late-night bistro appropriately lit. This is, of course, true of all kinds of criticism. But food in particular tends to locate its should in generally absolutist calls to authority, whether that is authenticity, is this how they make it? Tradition, is this how they used to make it? Or more generously, the coherence of a chef's vision, is this what she truly wants to make? End quote. This article focuses on a non-standard food critic who has become a viral sensation on YouTube, and his name is Elijah Kwashi, and he goes by the name The Chicken Connoisseur when he makes these videos in which he reviews street-side fish and chips and $2 burgers and fried chicken from convenience stores that is kept warm under heat lamps. Elijah himself is an interesting character, and I'll link to some of his videos in the show notes so you can check out his presentation style. He definitely has an attitude and a method of presentation that was essentially made for YouTube, in my opinion. But that he has done so well and attracted such a huge audience has raised a lot of questions 
in the minds of people who interview him and write about him, including the author of this piece, who uses Elijah as a starting point, but then dives deeper into what's happening in the food critic industry, what purpose that industry has traditionally served around the world and in London, where Elijah is from, and what the popularity of non-standard food critics means, especially at a moment in which the higher-end reviewers are dropping like flies due to journalistic budget cuts and a worldwide resurgence in populist attitudes. To start the conversation, let's first talk about the field of criticism and the role it has traditionally played in society. Typically, a critic, someone who professionally criticizes food or music or art or film or whatever else, is expected to play the role of an expert, someone who perhaps has a better understanding of their field of focus than we do, or who at the very least has relevant opinions on the topic, and who can then help us filter through the available options, whether that means restaurants or performances that are currently playing on Broadway, or albums that were released this month. These people have historically been specialists and are very often people who can help us not just make the choice we would have already made had we the time to watch all the movies that they watched or to dine at all the restaurants that they've dined at, but in fact to make better decisions that are informed by their personal opinions, by their refined palettes, their tastes. Their palettes are more refined than ours, so we trust them when they say that the coffee at a given cafe is too acidic or too pricey for what you get. We trust them when they tell us that the ratatouille is subpar or the new LP lacks production value. They are, in a way, advisors. Their role is to explore deeply into realms that we might only peruse broadly, superficially. They help us avoid a bad meal. They help us, over time, refine our tastes so that we, too, can grow as discerning eaters, viewers, listeners, and readers. But the traditional understanding of this position, it could be argued, is flawed from the outset. Yes, a critic with a refined palate will take away more data from a situation, and that might be better informed data, as they will know what to watch for when visiting a restaurant, more than I would anyway, or more than would anyone who isn't a passionate and well-trained culinary expert like they are. What's more, their ability to convey their experience in an interesting and useful way is a secondary trait that sets the mere enthusiast critic apart from those who are able to experience and analyze and then express and explain. But this entire profession assumes that the person on the other end of this article, the one reading the criticism, will have similar tastes and priorities as the person writing it. A New York Times food critic might find $2 pizza to be subpar in every way, but the average Joe and Jane might find it to be perfect for what they're looking for at the moment. Most people do not carefully consider each meal as a cultural experience. They are eating it to become full, to have the energy to go back to work, to have something to nibble on while they spend time with someone they're interested in, or maybe just to get an inexpensive shot of calories that taste good. More exposure to more types of food 
and an intentional focus on how the flavors blend and how the texture feels in one's mouth, how the plate is presented. These are all things that help a person appreciate their dining experience more, but they are not priorities for everyone all the time. For most people, food represents something completely different, and the same could be said of music, of theatrical performance, and anything else that one might become an expert in. As one's skills increase, as one's views become more expansive and informed and detail-oriented, one's perspective necessarily becomes more distant from that of non-experts. You are seeing the same thing differently. This unto itself would not be an issue if it were a matter of simply educating the populace about data collected at these experiences, but instead what we generally are looking for are informed opinions, and these opinions are not cleanly separated from the biases that shape them. A music expert who appreciates the finer points of classical music might scoff at the toe-tap-inducing but otherwise simple and predictable three-chord progressions of top 40 pop music, but that doesn't mean those pop songs are not appealing and valuable to someone. It doesn't mean those songs aren't high quality, according to a metric different from the one that classical music-preferring critic uses, as a consequence not just of their knowledge, but of their bias toward classical music. The article that we are unspooling addresses this eloquently, I think. Quote, Much contemporary culinary critique is implicitly modeled after F.R. Levis, the 20th century literary critic, who defined the best four authors in English as Jane Austen, George Eliot, Henry James, and Joseph Conrad, and then went on at great length to justify his stance with, quote, because I've read a lot, I know stuff, and I said so, end quote. While cooking itself seems to have moved firmly into its modernist phase, professional food criticism is, barring the occasional ode to the chicken nugget, still stuck in its because I said so mode, end quote. And later in the piece, talking about the chicken connoisseur, the article says, quote, his reviews aren't predicated upon arbitrary notions of sophistication, like those that tell us a pale French omelet sprinkled with fleur de sel is the height of class, while a browned Indian one loaded with chilies is crass. Nor are they solely based on price or portion size. Instead, they do exactly what criticism is supposed to do, lay out a series of well-defended but admittedly subjective criteria, then go about judging the food based on them. End quote. That acknowledgement of subjectivity is vital. And I want to be very clear here that even though I'm saying there are issues with the way we often approach the field of criticism, I'm absolutely not saying that having knowledge about something is bad, nor that it necessarily creates a barrier, making experts too informed to talk to the amateur. What I'm saying is that much of what makes a critic a good critic is their point of view, which is informed by experience and industry knowledge, but also by the same things anyone's point of view is informed by. Their background, their personal experiences, their individual tastes and preferences of all kinds. And recognition of this bias goes a long way to alleviate some of the issues that emerge in the field of criticism. 
The reason unrecognized bias is a particularly troublesome issue when it comes to the field of criticism, more so than for any normal person in some other field, is that we use these critics as guideposts, as yardsticks. We follow their lead, we mimic their tastes, because they are more experienced than us. And as such, if we disagree with their assessment and assertions, we will often feel that we are more likely to be wrong than they are. We measure our comprehension against theirs, but also our palates. And while the former can be valuable in expanding our knowledge and perceptual range, the latter, trying to measure our palates, our tastes against theirs, flattens us culturally. We succumb to palate-based groupthink, which leaves us with less variety, less diversity, and less opportunity to evolve as a society as a result. One more quote from the Eater piece that addresses this topic nicely, I think. Quote, When the public discourse around food is so overwhelmingly dominated not just by highfalutin critics, but those who are often white, middle-income, and left-leaning, the assumed standards by which food is judged tends to reflect and replicate exactly those values. If critics these days seem to most value food which presents a vision, highlights the ingredients, and inventively mixes influences, it's because those are the values of upwardly mobile, culturally omnivorous eaters who believe in conscious capitalism. End quote. Now, the counter-argument to this would be that exposure to thought leaders, experts, and critics is what helps us reach a higher level of palate sophistication and mass. And I mean that in terms of food palate, but also a metaphorical palate when it comes to our tastes in art and music and fashion and everything else. Rather than our society supporting only a bare few aristocratic upperclassmen, as was the case throughout most of history, most modern economies are capable of allowing a majority of people to indulge in inessential pursuits, like choosing between different types of coffee prepared in different ways, rather than settling for the cheapest or none at all. As such, it's not only natural for those who have superior coffee perception to rise to the top and lead the pack in that regard, but it's also beneficial, as they can help the rest of us enjoy a better caffeinated beverage experience. Without their aid, we may not know what we're supposed to be paying attention to, what flavors have always been hidden in our drinks that we never thought to notice, and what other methods of preparation are available, beyond the push-button solutions that might otherwise seem to be our only options. The dawn of influencers is just an extension of specialization, which is what, in many ways, allowed the modern world to develop in the first place. Now, is it possible that a coffee expert's background, let's say growing up in Southeast Asia, might have influenced her palate, leading her to prefer more sourness, let's say, in her coffee than most people prefer, and that this preference of hers might lead others to adopt the same preference, to have a bias toward sourness in their coffee? It is possible, yes. Does that hurt anyone? I don't know, probably not. Though there is a better chance of her becoming a somewhat harmful influencer if she lacks awareness of her bias and perceives her sourness preference to be the only correct one, as if that is the only correct way to have coffee, 
and then passes that blind bias on to others. This could, in turn, depending on her popularity level, lead a whole lot of other people to ignore other perhaps very valuable properties of the coffee that they are tasting, which in turn could flatten their experience of that coffee and then could, in turn, potentially, societally flatten the type of coffee that we're exposed to, that we have imported, that stores stock and that cafes pour, if her influence is immense enough at least to sway sales in that way. It's worth remembering, I think, that some books that were considered to be literary marvels when they were first written are today all but unknown. They were products of their time that just don't make sense by contemporary standards. The same is true in reverse, that some books which remained unappreciated in their time are today considered to be masterpieces. This fact is something that we like to ignore, because we like to be able to say, this song is great, this is the best song of the year. And we like to be able to say that without having to ask ourselves a whole bunch of clarifying questions. It's more satisfying to just declare something to be the best. But the best by what standard? And how long will that standard hold? And is it the best for us and for our specific society? How large a group adheres to that particular metric of best? As soon as we acknowledge that the standards by which we are judging our favorite songs are not just transient in terms of time period, but are also incredibly subjective to us and us alone, or on a massive scale potentially, us and our subculture within our major culture, within our country, within our hemisphere, it makes us feel less credible as critics, at least in the sense of critics being the ultimate arbiters of taste and quality. Critics who are self-aware enough to recognize that their views are biased toward people who have the same tastes and standards as them probably will not experience as much cognitive dissonance as a result of this thought that tastes are transient, because they already know that their best song of the year is just one of many such songs chosen by one of many biased critics. To them, all of those additional subtitles, best song of the year in this particular city, in this particular month of this particular year by this particular subgroup, that's all implied. But for a lot of people, and not just critics, that unfortunately is not the case. And this lack of self-awareness has a lot of other consequences beyond just the music that they're listening to. And I'll touch on that a little bit more in just a second here. Now, part of what's notable about the chicken connoisseur, to me, is that he's immensely popular in a field that is typically the realm of relatively highbrow rumination, but he's approaching it in a decidedly and unabashedly lowbrow fashion. So let's stop for a second here. Just now, I said lowbrow and highbrow, and chances are there are things that immediately came to mind when I mentioned each of those labels. What each term means to you will depend heavily on your culture, on your geographic locality within that culture, on your personal background, and in some ways even your perception of yourself in terms of where you fall on the lowbrow-highbrow spectrum. To some people, lowbrow is an insult. That's typically the case for people who perceive themselves to be highbrow, or who at least aspire to be. 
On the other hand, many people who perceive themselves to be lowbrow or who celebrate brands and icons that market themselves to the vox populi consider the label to be a more positive thing, associating anything highbrow with arrogance and condescension, with pretension. And frankly, there's probably a good reason for that. If you look around at food criticism written about so-called lowbrow food and the culture that surrounds it, you'll notice they very often use the vocabulary of colonizers to describe it, almost like they are discovering lost tribes. We saw this in the early days of online platforms like Etsy as well, when suddenly a bunch of Midwestern fashion designers and craftspeople were able to sell their wares to anyone on the planet. And the coastal fashionistas and foodies, those who see themselves as being connected to the larger civilized world, were suddenly discovering, quote-unquote, these people who had been there all along, but who they perceived to only just now be relevant now that they were connected to that larger civilized world. The same is true when a big city food critic, who is renowned for their work reviewing chefs with Michelin stars, go on the road to indulge in food truck cuisine and local favorite restaurants in smaller towns. They will often wax poetic about how abysmal certain aspects of the dining experience can be, then somewhat condescendingly pat the locals on the head when they manage to get something right, something that the critics' normal readers take for granted. They'll often chuckle politely at the naivete of these outsiders while adopting a sort of noble savage perspective about them when it comes to other aspects of their culture. Look how innocent their approach to cuisine is. Arguably, this is part of what happened to some journalistic entities during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. These Midwestern, Rust Belt, Southern people that the big city highbrow journalists decided to go out and quote-unquote find to discover and report on, they were always there. But the way in which they were reported on implied that they did not exist or perhaps just didn't matter until they were discovered and written about in these periodicals that these writers care about. And until they were reported on in a voice that the highbrow folk could recognize as their own voice. It wasn't the same to have these stories written in the local paper in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma. They needed to have one of their papers back home writing about it for these people to have finally hit the big time, to be relevant to the larger conversation. Now, that's not to imply that the cultural divisions that we are seeing between these classes only go one way. This stratification is maintained by both sides enthusiastically and by all the gray-toned gradient groups in between to a certain degree as well. We use social signals to indicate who we are, what group we're part of, and what we believe. And these signals just reinforce those divides, allow us to tribe up. In some cases, these signals, they're literal, taking the shape of maybe a political bumper sticker or an economic class indicating brand logo. In other cases, though, it's an affected preference for a certain type of music, a certain coffee preparation method, a certain fashion aesthetic. These signals are not new. They are as old as tribalism. And in most cases, we're not even aware that our preference for a certain brand of laptop or style of jeans is informed by the people we look up to 
in the group that we see ourselves being a part of. We would never say, this is the type of truck I'm supposed to own to be like that person who is iconic within my social group. Instead, we would just want that truck because it's awesome. The same with the need to have a $7 cup of coffee. In some cases, this might be a purely personal choice, but in many cases, perhaps most cases, we perceive it to be cool and desirable to have our coffee prepared in that way, in that style, with that flavor, because our choices, our preferences, the way that we live, are all shaped by our self-perception as members of a certain group who aspire to climb higher up the ranks of that group And we do that by succeeding according to the metrics of that group. Part of what makes someone like Anthony Bourdain such a pleasure to watch and to read is that he's able to approach gritty, ground-level situations and describe them in terms that a New Yorker magazine subscriber can appreciate. Yes, his work has a more guttural vibe than that of other well-known New York Times best-selling authors, but It's still what we might call a high-end mainstream presentation of something normal. It's maybe equivalent to something like Jack Kerouac's On the Road or J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. It is uncouthness that is granted couthitude by elevating that particular perspective, that gritty perspective, to a commonly accepted canon that is digestible by the aforementioned reader of New Yorker magazine. Catcher in the Rye might have been a book of the people once, but it was appropriated and then taught by people who used it as a lens to understand something they didn't experience firsthand. The same is true, I think, of Bourdain's experiences. It's a look at the lowbrow through the lens of the highbrow. The chicken connoisseur, on the other hand, is a look at the lowbrow without any lens at all. There's no magnification or distortion taking place. It is the real deal. The kid running the YouTube channel speaks with deep London street slang, and he shows off a new pair of sneakers at the beginning of each episode, and he shares his opinion on the types of food that he and his peers actually eat, gauging the quality of that food not in terms of how authentic it is, or how clever a take on the fried chicken recipe it happens to be, or even where the ingredients are purchased or how they are grown. He uses metrics that are closer to home. Does the fried chicken easily pull away from the bone? Does the crust stay attached? Are the chips, the fries, soft enough so that the salt and pepper stick to them? It's criticism that is of its place and time. And while that means the audience won't necessarily be the same audience that might watch and enjoy Bourdain, it does mean that there's a new, quite large audience that is ponying up to the table, suddenly feeling represented. It means that an audience that wasn't being spoken to is finally getting to have a conversation, and in a language that makes sense to them, that is relevant to them. And this, to me, seems like a really healthy way to approach criticism. But that said, being a healthy way to approach something, or a a correct way, I guess, implies that there are correct ways, that there are unchangeable standards, there are metrics that are unbreakable with this sort of thing. And that, in turn, implies that if you break rules, you must break them in a way that is recognizable to the existing establishment, 
And God help you if you're ahead of your time, like so many revolutionaries and rule breakers have been in the past. Their work only recognized as brilliant by critics from a later age. Because to have a correct way of doing something, we have to have a universal metric by which we can gauge that correctness. And food, music, art, it all changes with time. There is a good chance that our critics are chronologically biased, are prejudiced toward the standards, the units of measurement of today, because there's no way that they could be biased in favor of the metrics that we favor tomorrow, unless they're time travelers, which would be cool, but that is unlikely. If we can recognize this, that things change and therefore our standards and criticisms are entirely of our time, we can then find ourselves stuck in an uncomfortable state of almost confusion, but really it's more absolute malleability, a philosophical contextualism that we apply to everything, which makes everything equal then in someone's eyes, because we don't know if the standards that we use today will always be the quote-unquote correct standards, if they will remain the standards in the future. And so we immediately date ourselves as soon as we use one particular unit of measurement to judge the quality of something, which implies then that the prudent thing to do would be to assume that potentially any property of anything we might be criticizing could be the correct unit of measurement to use, and that measurement of bad to good could actually go in either direction as well. It may be that today we want our coffee to be incredibly strong and black and sour, but tomorrow the complete opposite is the standard of quality that we adhere to, that we want it to be watery and we want it to be rich, not sour, and we want it to be almost transparent. There's no way to know, and as a result, potentially the correct thing to do is to step back and just say, well, here are the standards that I'm using, and here's the unit of measurement that I'm using, but I can't say anything more than that. This book may not be any good for me and my standards, but to someone, it might be the best book ever created, depending on what their standards are, what they as individuals are looking for in a book. That would be a truly bizarre criticism column to read, but that is one extreme of this argument. And it's actually, philosophically at least, a really good way to approach these types of things, a really good way to approach the properties and the units of measurement that we use to judge things, to criticize things. It's good to stay open and open-minded and contextually aware, and it's good to recognize that other people's biases, other people's values are not the same as yours. But this is also an essentially useless standpoint to take in the practical, concrete sense in terms of coming up with a meaningful criticism of something, but also in terms of figuring out how you want to live and in terms of figuring out how you want society to be what you want it to be predicated on. If we say, for example, that all philosophies are equal because each and every one aligns perfectly with someone's worldview, I do think that that is correct on a theoretical level, but it doesn't help us when we are talking about tangible reality. If you can just go murder someone and say that your philosophy allows you to do so, and society is set up in such a way that allows that belief to get you off the hook because all beliefs are equal, 
well, it won't take long for us to no longer have a society, or at least not one that many people would want to live in. On the other hand, it is equally limiting to fixate completely on the practical at the expense of the theoretical. We could conceivably pass a law that says no violence is acceptable ever, and that would be a very clean-cut, concrete, enforceable thing to say. But at the same time, it would prevent us from bending or amending the rules in the case of, for example, foreign aggression from another society that doesn't adhere to the same ideology. It also doesn't help us if, over time, our perception of what violence means were to change. We require different points of view if we want to see the larger context, but we also need more concrete, less malleable foundations and frameworks so that we don't wobble ourselves into an early societal grave. The balance between these two extremes can be very tricky to maintain. It can lead to confusion about what is fact and what is fiction and what is a filtered version of reality with all the bias that that entails. The internal drive that makes us want to have access to the truth when it comes to what is the best album of the year or what is the best cup of coffee in the city is the same internal drive that makes us feel that our opinions are just as valuable as empirical data. It's the same drive that makes us question well-investigated journalism and change the news outlets that we pay attention to when the news that we are presented with does not match our preconceived ideas or our opinions about how things are going in the world. It is what leads to fractured, divisive, partisan shout-offs rather than intelligible and valuable debate and conversation. What helps me personally navigate this dichotomy is constantly reminding myself that these two ways of viewing the world can, in fact, exist at the same time. You just have to make sure you apply them correctly. What guides my actions in the here and the now are concrete things like wanting to have human rights and wanting other people to have them as well. At the same time, I can understand how someone else might come to a different conclusion about the topic of human rights. These theoretical people in different timelines or these people who have grown up under radically different circumstances than me, I can understand how they would hold very different beliefs from me, even though to me, these beliefs are self-evident. To them, very different beliefs would be self-evident. And I can even understand how these people might be good people by the standards of their societies and by the broad standards of a human being acting in accordance with their own beliefs and what they have been taught to be good by their faith or by their culture and so on. But I still, even knowing all that and still recognizing that somebody who's doing something that I consider to be atrocious could still be a good person by standards different from my own, I still have to live with the consequences of what I do. And I still have to be able to sleep at night or not based on how those actions align with my beliefs, however those beliefs might have been shaped. What it is is a conscious awareness and acknowledgement of the big picture but a practical focus on subjective experience, even as those two things continue to evolve, allowing them to influence different portions of my life. I know that my not liking 
a certain food or genre of music does not mean that it is bad food or bad music in an absolute sense. But that awareness does not preclude me from having an opinion about food and music. It doesn't mean I can't come up with metrics by which to judge food and music just because those same metrics are not held by everyone. And it doesn't mean that my subjective experience of anything is worthless. That larger context, in fact, can help me understand how to get more out of food and music for me, for my subjective experience, by helping me understand what other people prioritize and then trying those on for size if I want to, or at least being able to look out into the world and recognize that there are other preferences, which then helps put my preferences into that larger context, helps me locate them on the map. Context also helps me understand that my preferences in food and in music and in everything else is shaped by countless factors, many of which I would not be able to identify if I tried. And importantly, the same is true for everyone else on the planet as well. Our behaviors in this regard, and in most regards really, are complex and difficult to fully observe and understand in any practical way. We are slowly but surely increasing our abilities, of course, through algorithms and through increased representation for critics who prioritize differing and even obscure metrics of quality. But we have to be careful along the way, as any of these tools, and perhaps especially the most powerful and potent of them, can easily be inverted building thicker walls rather than knocking them down, and more efficiently dividing us into marketable demographics rather than helping us grow, and rather than exposing us to a host of increasingly rich experiences in all possible meanings of that word. Let's Know Things is brought to you by its wonderful listeners. A huge thanks to everyone who has already contributed in some way. If you are considering contributing in the future, there are a host of different ways that you can do that. If you go to letsnotethings.com, you will find a host of different means of contributing to the show. Everything from leaving a review on iTunes, sharing it with a friend or your social network. You can contribute monetarily through Venmo or PayPal. You can do your shopping through my Amazon link. Whatever means to that end makes the most sense for you. Thank you so much. I very much appreciate each and every contribution. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. First sponsor today is Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free 30-day trial of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice. And that is any audiobook from their service, and there are hundreds of thousands of them. And if you are lacking inspiration as to what to spend that credit on, might I suggest The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. This book, I believe, is going to be turned into a TV series soon. I want to say it's coming to Hulu, so hopefully that will turn out to be a good translation. But the book itself is amazing. It is disturbing. It came out in the mid-80s, and it's a bit of a dystopian tale about the Theocratic Republic of Gilead, which is a republic that is founded after a radical religious group overthrows the U.S. government and kills the president and most of Congress. And then they go on to take away all human rights, essentially, 
with the pretext that they are trying to restore order and get things figured out. But of course, they never give those rights back. And women in particular suffer under this regime and have all of their rights taken away, including the right to read. And they are indoctrinated and speckled throughout society, fulfilling a host of demeaning roles. One of them in particular is that of the handmaid, who is a woman that exists to help the men reproduce. They are essentially impregnated by a man with his wife present during a ceremony because reproduction within the society has become nearly impossible due to the side effects of pollution and rampant STDs. So it's a feel-good novel, as you can probably understand. Margaret Atwood is just a treasure. Every book she's ever written has been amazing. This one in particular is considered to be a modern masterpiece, and I definitely agree with that. My opinion on this thing and all things are very subjective, of course. But I would highly recommend it if you are looking for an excellent book to read. That is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. You can get it at your local library, your local indie bookstore. You can grab it on Amazon, get it on your Kobo or your Kindle. Or if you would like, you can go to audibletrial.com LKT, get your free credit, spend it on this book. A great way to get a free excellent book to read, or in the case of Audible, have read to you and to also help the show at the same time. And the other sponsor today is HostGator, the hosting company that I've used for many years and very gladly. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount that they provide to listeners of Let's Know Things, and that is off of their already excellent prices. HostGator.com LKT, if you are thinking of starting a blog or a portfolio site, a website for your business, whatever you're looking to do, chances are they can help you out and at a discount. If you go to Let'sKnowThings.com, you will find the show notes to this episode and every episode of the podcast. You can also sign up for the weekly newsletter, which is a collection of links to interesting things that goes out every Monday. If you go to colin.io, you can learn more about me and my other projects, including the books that I have written. You can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet at Colin is my name. I'm all over all the social networks. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.